Welcome to this Upula audio production of X Marks the Spy by Jack Lancer. Volume 7. Chapter 19. Air Force One. Chris's scalp contracted in a thrill of horror. He had blundered into a trap. The teen agent flung up his arms to beat off the repulsive creatures. The next instant, a light flared on again above the tunnel entrance. Chris gave a shudder of relief as the bats rose all around him, soaring up to the ceiling of the chamber. Clinging to the rough limestone with their claws, they peered down at him with impudently little snouty faces. Chris turned to flee back into the tunnel, though the single light left the far walls of the chamber shrouded in darkness. Do not move, Monsieur Cole! The shrill, high-pitched voice seemed to come from everywhere and nowhere. The bats ceased attacking you in response to an ultrasonic whistle above the range of human hearing. But the first move to escape, they will go for you again. Their bite is extremely virulent and results in permanent brain damage if you survive at all. <laughs> again came that weird laugh, almost a giggle. Chris realized it must be issuing from stereophonic speakers installed around the chamber. Should he risk a sudden dash? Chris tensed and darted toward the tunnel entrance. At once the bats dived like miniature kamikazes. Stop! Chris froze motionless and the bats soared upward again back to their ceiling roost. Perhaps you thought I was bluffing, monsieur. Now you know better. One more attempt to escape, and I shall abandon you to your fate. There was something vaguely familiar about that voice, yet Chris couldn't place it. All right, so I'm your prisoner. Now what? You will learn that in due course. Mouton emerged from the tunnel, armed and smiling nastily. He switched on his flashlight, which revealed another exit. That way, monsieur. Hands on your head. As they moved across the chamber, the bats fluttered along watchfully. Chris strode through an exit into another tunnel, convoyed by the swarm of winged creatures. Finally, he discerned an opening ahead. It led into a dank, stone-floored cellar festooned with cobwebs. Somewhere ahead, a strange babble of voices broke out. Or were they voices? The sounds were a bestial gibbering, the same noises Spice had heard. Chris's blood ran cold as he drew nearer. The sounds were coming from a grating in the floor. Halt, monsieur! Mouton aimed the flashlight's beam through the grate. Below lay an underground dungeon, evidently an oubliette which opened only at the top. Chris gasped. The dungeon was crowded with half a dozen prisoners, wild-eyed, filthy, bearded. They stared up, jabbering and slavering. Mouton chuckled. They are all victims of bat bites! Victims who are unlucky enough to survive. He conducted Chris across the cellar to another grating and ordered him to lean against the wall while being frisked. The bats continued to circle and flutter above their heads. Mouton took Chris's wallet, anesthetic pen, camera, and other items of teenage equipment. He put a pack of chewing gum back in Chris's pocket with a sneering laugh. Keep this. It may help you to stave off your hunger. You will not find our prison fare very appetizing. After making Chris hand over his wristwatch, Mouton unlocked and opened the grating, 
and ordered him to descend a short, steep flight of stone steps into the oubliette. Then he lowered the grate into place and locked it. I will leave the light on so you and no bats are on guard. Chuckling, Mouton added, But there is no danger of you breaking out. His face withdrew from view, and Chris heard his steps fading off across the stone floor. Nice going, cool old boy, Chris thought bitterly. He'd really walked into this one. It was clear enough now what had happened. Spice must have been taken prisoner just before he arrived, and Mouton had resurfaced to make sure she had not been tailed to the rendezvous. A faint tapping sound drew Chris's attention to the wall of the dungeon. Two long taps, short tap, then another long tap. International Morse code. Chris spelled out letters as the tapping continued. The sender was asking in French, Who are you? Chris looked around hastily for something to reply with. Among the filthy straw on the floor lay a few crumpled pieces of rock. Chris snatched up the biggest and pounded out, American, Chris Cool, who are you? The reply was, Fernac, Dossième Bureau. So the journalist was actually a French Secret Service agent, and now he too was a prisoner of the chiller. As the code conversation went on, Chris learned why Fernac had been sent to Brissy. More than a week earlier, the Paris police had fished a woman named Odette Cassis out of the Seine. She was half-drowned and mentally deranged, but on the following Monday night she had recovered long enough to babble a strange story. A secret agent named Omega was going to Chateau Brissy to pick up information on Skykill from someone with an invisible X on his left hand. The Ducien Bureau had been alerted, and the next day the jewelry shop had been searched. Omega's letter drop box had already been looted. The circumstances, however, bore out Odette's story well enough so that Fernac had been sent to the feet at Brissy to pose as X in the hope of intercepting Omega and learning more. Apparently, La Glissier's men had recognized him as a French agent, and he had been kidnapped from his hotel room that same night. Chris gave a brief account of his own mission. It was clear now that Odette must have been the woman who had acted as a go-between on X's deal with Omega. Probably she was also the one who had betrayed the deal to the chiller. The slow, tedious code tapping had gone on for more than an hour. At last they stopped sending. How to escape. Chris turned the problem over and over in his mind. He had one secret weapon still left at his disposal. He might use it to break out, but the risk would be deadly dangerous in the confined space of his cell. Even if I lived to get out, Chris thought grimly, there'd still be the bats. The bats! Chris's heart leapt as an idea occurred to him. It was no guarantee of escape, but it might offer a fighting chance later. He mounted the stone steps. Through the grating he could see the swarm of deadly bats clinging to the vaulted cellar ceiling. Chris stuck a hand through the bars and waggled it back and forth. Instantly the bats stirred into action, zooming down toward a living target. Chris pulled his hand back just in time to keep from being bitten. Grinning with satisfaction, he took the pack of chewing gum out of his pocket. There were five sticks. Four contained various chemicals. The fifth contained a tiny microcircuit device in a flat sheath of plastic film. Chris unwrapped the sticks one by one and popped them into his mouth. Mingled with saliva, the chemical components began to react and produce a new potent substance. While he chewed, Chris took off his coat and ripped off the lining. 
He wrapped the material around his hand and reached out through the grate. The bats swooped down fiercely. Chris grabbed one and pulled it, squeaking through the bars. By now the gum was wadded into a sticky ball. Chris plastered it firmly to the creature's back. Then he shoved the bat out through the bars and released it. Nothing to do now but wait. Hours dragged by. He was wakened by the clanking sound of the grate being opened, and Mouton's face leered down. Up you come, Monsieur Cool, quickly now, he chuckled. We must not keep Le Glacier waiting. Le Glacier. So at last, Chris was to meet the deadly chiller face to face. Nearby, another guard was rousting out Fernac. The French agent emerged, haggard and unshaven. The bats had fluttered down from their roost and were circling watchfully. The two prisoners were conducted back to the generator chamber, then through another tunnel into a huge, brightly lit laboratory workshop. The room was crammed with electronic gear, machine tools, and scientific equipment. A dozen men in white smocks, evidently engineers and technicians, were busily at work. At one end of the room was a broad desk workbench and a large control panel studded with monitor screens, dials, knobs, and switches. Beside it stood a massive, curious-looking console, apparently some sort of electronic unit. Chris's eyes came to rest on three figures near the console. One was the Count de Bercy, dapper as ever. The others were Spice Carter and a guard on watch behind her. A group of bats was roosting upside down in the ceiling above the trio. The swarm which had accompanied Chris and Fernac joined them. Chris winked at Spice and chagrined back. Gee willikers, we sure seem to have gotten ourselves into a frightful mess, huh? Have no fear. Cool is here, Chris responded. The Count burst into a high-pitched giggle. Ha 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 Both in high spirits, I see. You will forgive these nasty bats, I hope. They are ferocious and act as watchdogs to attack any intruder unless restrained by a blast from one of these ultrasonic whistles. The Count picked up a metal cylinder from his desk. My associates and I also sprayed with a special scent repugnant to the bats, which kept them from attacking us. You, I take it, are Le Glacier? said Chris. The Count bowed mockingly. I acquired that name in the early days of my experimenting. It was when I tasted the first crude model of my invention on sample victims from the French underworld, as well as several unfortunate foreign agents. The Count tittered as if at an amusing joke. Now you will see before you the final formidable model of Ciel Assassin, or Skykill, if you wish. He gestured to the console, then pressed a button. A steel panel on the wall slid aside to reveal a periscopic viewport. Through it, Chris and Spice could see a hill across the river, topped by a lone slender cypress tree. That tree contains the radiating antenna! Very soon you will see it in action! This isn't your only model of Stykill, is it? No, indeed, monsieur! The Count chuckled. <laughs> the two exquisitely miniaturized portable models were developed at great trouble and expense. One was smuggled into your own country and later destroyed over there to avoid risk of discovery. The other was used against you on the Chateau Tower. That one was later taken to Saint-Tropez to deal with Rovatsky, as well as you and your partner. That is if my agent in the Triumph had succeeded in kidnapping you on the road. 
Well, you're undoubtedly a genius in your own peculiar way, said Chris. But why all the trouble to develop this mad scientist gadget? The Count's face darkened. I am not mad, my friend. Someday I shall rule France. To achieve that, one needs a powerful organization. And Todd has promised to place all his resources at my disposal in exchange for the use of Skykill. Suddenly, a number of pieces of the jigsaw fell into place in Chris's mind. So the Chiller and Toad have been working together all along? Exactly. Today's demonstration is a small job which I am carrying out for Toad. The Count's lips twisted into a cunning smile. Maybe you would like to hear the whole story. Chris shrugged. Why not? To begin with, I needed a staff of expert scientists, so I endowed an agricultural institute as a cover for their presence in Bilisi. One of these scientists was Ravatsky, but he became greedy and attempted to sell information on Skykill to a certain agent known as Omega. Then Ravatsky was the real X? We, oui. unluckily for him, he used a friend named Odette Cassis to make the arrangements. But Odette was also greedy, and she double-crossed Omega by selling out to Toad, Chris said. And after Toad found out all it wanted, it disposed of her? Quite right, by injecting her with a mind-scrambling drug and dumping her into the Seine. First, of course, they kidnapped the jewelry shop owner to check out her story and to squeeze out of him the real identity of Omega. And once you learned Omega was Anson, your agents proceeded to hunt him down. Not mine, Toad's. But of course, we were working together. And one was that frog-faced character. We, he and two others, trailed Anson to America and eliminated him. The Count chuckled. <laughs> the job was not done as thoroughly as one might wish because you and your friend interrupted. Only Frog-Face returned. He had seen you at the amusement park and again on the plane coming to France. Once back in Paris, he tried to dispose of Bridget Dubois and the painter Triquet in case they had learned anything. But his ice cube trick didn't work. Alas, no. Nor apparently did his attempt to ambush you in the Eiffel Tower. This time it was Chris's turn to grin. Frogface made another blunder, the Count went on. He failed to find out your name and your partner's name, nor had he bothered to transmit your descriptions since he expected to kill you in Paris. Thus we were left not knowing who might try to follow up Omega's lead. That's why you didn't rub out Ravaski right away, Chris inquired. We, oui. in case of emergency, we had planned all along to save him as bait for a trap. At the feet, Ravaski was watched closely. Mouton, who is towards the liaison here, also wore an X on his hand in the hope that the American agent might contact him by mistake. But you were too cautious. However, we had prepared an alternate plan, an X mark on the chateau diagram, to lure you up to the tower. This trap you fell into, but again you escaped. Not too well, Chris said grimly. You knew I'd get soaked from diving into the river, so you sent your men out to look for some telltale wet clothes, which they found in my Alfa Romeo. The Count nodded. So now that we had identified you, it remained only to eliminate you. You and your partner were to be iced in your hotel room that night, but you were too wary to sleep there. In the meantime, said Chris, Ravaski decided to go down to Saint-Tropez and give me a chance to contact him there. Precisely. 
and this suited us very well, since we could now eliminate Ravatsky, you and your partner, at the same distance from Bresci. But you two escaped from our road trap. Then a tow device was planted in Ravatsky's luggage to mislead you into thinking he was not the real ex. This would ensure you came back to Bercy, where we could finish you once and for all. By the way, Chris said, just how did your agent or agents manage to ice Ravatsky at San Tropez Harbor without anybody noticing? The Count smiled and took from his desk what looked like a very small hand movie camera. Not very deadly in appearance, eh? Yet this is the portable model of Skykill. The man who used it on Ravatsky seemed only to be photographing a boat coming into the harbor. De Percy placed it on top of the large console model. There you see them, my friend. The small-scale and full-scale fruits of my genius. Monsieur le Comte. Chris looked around at the man who had spoken. He was wearing headphones and was seated before a rack of electronic gear on which a red light was now flashing. Beside him, another operator was seated at a large digital computer. You have news, Chuck? The Count inquired. We, oui. Air Force One, passed the Paris checkpoint seven minutes ago. It was positively identified by the radio transmissions between its pilot and Paris air traffic control. Our radar has now locked on. You can see the bleep on your monitor screen if you wish. Chris and Spice exchanged stunned glances. Air Force One was the personal plane of the President of the United States. The Count switched on his radar scope, then smiled grimly. I can see you are the guest, mes enfants. <laughs> the President's blade is now headed this way, bearing him and his top advisor to the Summit Power Conference in Vienna. In a few seconds, they will pass within range of Skykill. Chapter 20 Bat Bomb A small blip could be seen moving slowly toward the center of the Count's radar scope, painted by the revolving finger of light that swept around the screen. The Count stepped to his Skykill console and switched on the power to the circuitry. After adjusting various knobs and dials, he pointed to the periscope window. The weapon is now being aimed! The two teen agents saw the tall tip of the cypress tree bent slightly to the westward. Spice gave Chris a frantic look. In moments, the wings and fuselage of Air Force One would begin to ice over. Soon, its wings and fuselage would give way from the brittle, chilling effect of Skykill, and the plane would be torn apart in midair. The President and America's key defense experts would crash to destruction. Noticing Spice's look, the guard clamped a warning hand on her shoulder. Do not try anything foolish, mademoiselle, he snarled. Chris took a deep breath. It was now or never. With a sudden lunge, he darted across the floor towards Skykill. Down, Spice, Chris yelled. The deadly bats were already swooping to attack. The Count, Mouton, and two guards who had moved to intercept Chris now drew back hastily to let the bats zoom in on their victim. Chris dived face down on the floor behind the console. For a moment, it shielded him from the bats, and in the same instant, his finger flicked the prong on his belt buckle. This prong was a switch to the radio transmitter inside his belt. Instantly, the transmitter flashed a triggering signal to the microcircuit detonator in the wad of explosive gum plastered on the bat's back. Kaboo! There was a blinding flash and a stunning concussion. 
Fragments of shredded bats and electronic debris flew through the air. It was several moments before Chris recovered his wits. His head was still ringing from the blast. The explosive gum, designed for blowing enemy safes and cell doors rather than demolition work, had served his purpose. Both models of Skykill had been blown to smithereens. Chris looked around hastily while struggling to his feet. Fernak had followed the teenagent's lead and flung himself face down. Both he and Spice appeared unhurt were getting up. The Count, Mouton, and two guards, however, had caught the full shockwave from the blast as well as the shrapnel effect of the flying fragments, and all lay motionless. The Count's other men, the white smock technicians, were still on their feet. They stared in dismay at the unexpected scene. Let's get out of here. Chris seized Spice's arm. Fernak followed as the teen agents dashed for the tunnel. But several of the Count's men were racing to cut off their escape. The others were closing in behind them. Everyone came together in a wild, colliding melee. Spice was nearly as good at judo and karate as Chris was. She sent one man crashing to the floor with a handsword chop and kicked another neatly in the chin. Chris flung his nearest assailant over his shoulder, then butted his head into the solar plexus in the next. Fernak, meanwhile, was fighting with calm, deadly skill. But the close quarters and weight of numbers were against the three agents. They were in danger of being overwhelmed by the sheer pileup. Suddenly, a blood-curdling war whoop echoed through the tunnel. Leopachi! Someone screamed. Sob quiput! Chris recognized the yell as Geronimo's voice, but the effect on the Count's men was demoralizing. They wavered and looked around for the nearest escape route. Next moment, Geronimo was among them like a wolf in the sheepfold. Heads crashed together and teeth splintered. Ten minutes later, the count remnants of the Count's men, who were still on their feet, had been lined up facing the wall. The secret agents held them covered with weapons taken from Mouton and the guards. Oh, good grief! I may faint, gasped Spice in a sudden girlish reaction. Geronimo chuckled. That I want to see. By the way, Jerry, how did you manage to get here? Chris asked. It was really nothing, said the Apache. I spent half the night trying to figure out why you left no trail out of the clearing, and I hid in the woods in case the chiller and his goons might be looking for me. This morning I got the sudden idea of exploring the mysterious bat-haunted cellar that Spice discovered the night of the feet. Eventually I found the tunnel that led here. All three of you deserve the Legion of Honor, Fernak declared. Is anybody, uh, you know, dead? Spice asked falteringly, not wanting to look around. I believe they will recover from their injuries, the French secret agent replied. Possibly even the Count de Bracy, although I fear the outlook for his health may not be too good when the French justice system comes to deal with him. Twenty-four hours later, the three teen agents were standing at attention in the presidential suite in Vienna. I understand, then, the sky kill is completely destroyed, the chief executive asked. Yes, Mr. President, Chris replied. The Count de Bercy was the only person who knew the overall assembly and carried the whole design in his head. He refused to let the doctors operate to save him. Any danger that the Reds acquired anything? No, sir. Chris explained the coded reports from Valud's network had been found in the Red Spymaster's office. They showed how his agents had discovered the chiller was hunting down Anson. From this, Valud guessed that Anson must have stumbled on some important secret. A watch had been kept on Anson's fiancée, 
and later Barone had succeeded in stealing the Omega key from Trakay's studio. He had recognized it as the key to the letter drop setup at Hosha's jewelry shop and had gone there immediately to raid Omega's box. In the box was a follow-up note, unsigned, but no doubt from Bravatsky, asking for confirmation of the meeting at the Count's feet. This clue had brought Valud and Barone to Bercy. The Count had guessed their purpose and decided to crack up their plane with Skykill. Brigitte Dubois and Triquet, Chris added, had been located and are now safely back in Paris. The President smiled approvingly and shook hands one by one with Chris, Spice, and Geronimo. You have discharged your mission with skill and valor, and rendered a great service to the whole free world. Your chief has recommended all of you for the highest teen agent award. In the meantime, how about a week's vacation in Paris as guests of the State Department before returning to your studies? He flushed and looked rather startled as Spice flung her arms around his neck and planted a loud smack on his cheek. Oh, Mr. President, Spice exclaimed, that is a smashing idea. The End This is your narrator, Jim Campanella. We hope that you've enjoyed this Upila audio presentation of X Marks the Spy by Jim Lawrence. The opening and closing themes were obviously both the classic rock song Secret Agent Man, composed by Steve Barry and P.F. Sloan, and popularized by Johnny Rivers. The opening song was sung appropriately by the Japanese rock band Secret Agent Man. The closing version of Secret Agent Man was the Hal Leonard arrangement, which I think is mostly used for marching bands. That version was played by the Discovery Plus concert band. Please feel free to write us and tell us what you think at Uvula Audio at uvulaaudio.com. You can become a Facebook fan of Uvula Audio. Just do a search for Uvula Audio on Facebook. We are listed on Podcast Alley. Please vote for the adult or kids book cast so that we can get more listeners. As usual, check out our Cafe Press website for t-shirts, etc. For other Uvula Audio titles, please go to our website at www.uvulaaudio.com. We are listed on iTunes, and you can subscribe and download our podcast for free there. If you like our podcast, please feel free to tip us whatever amount you may like using the secure PayPal link. All money will go toward maintaining the podcast in the future. Next in our podcast lineup in a couple of weeks will be Stiff Upper Lip Jeeves by P.G. Woodhouse. It is the sequel to How Right You Are Jeeves, which we bookcast a while back. Stiff Upper Lip was published in 1963 and is the penultimate one in the series. The last book in the series, which we will probably present in 2012 at some point, was Jeeves and the Tie That Binds, which was published in 1971. What's the plot of Stiff Upper Lip Jeeves? Well, all great heroes have their challenges. Dante had his Inferno, Odysseus had to get past Scylla and Charybdis, Doc Savage had Johnny Sunlight, and this time, Bertie Worcester has to darken the dangerous halls of Topley Tower again to avoid the unwelcome bands of matrimony with Miss Madeline Bassett. I think that's enough of a teaser. By the way, you may want to become a fan of Uvula Audio on Facebook very soon. In the next couple of weeks, we will do something unusual on our Facebook page and actually have a vote for the book that we will present in the podcast after the upcoming Bertie and Jeeves novel. We will be taking a poll, and you can vote for the next book coming up in the Uvula Audio queue. Becoming a Facebook fan will get your desire heard. We look forward to hearing your opinion. 
From all of us at Uvula Audio, we thank you. <laughs>